we uh, end a six-week conversation today on the Bema Seat of Christ. I'll say it once again. I have felt the need to repeat uh, a few points that are, I believe, important. Many people don't understand what the Bema Seat is. Christians, I believe, that the, the, the concept, the reality of the Bema Seat is is a new concept, a foreign concept, unfortunately. it's For some reason, it's not taught all that often. So with that in mind, and if you're coming in, just perhaps this is your first time in this series on the sixth week, there are a few things I, I need to lay out for you. What is the Bema Seat? I'll remind you that in the time that Paul wrote the New Testament, when he mentioned the word Bema, it's a Greek word, everyone in that culture understood it. Because the Bema would have been something like Yankee Stadium or Fenway. Back then, the Bema was part of what was called the Isthmian Games. They were the Olympic Games. The Bema seat was a seat on which the judge sat. And at the end of the games, whether that was a race or some type of game, the athletes would file one by one in front of the Bema seat. And the judge would assess how that athlete had participated in the game, how they ran the race, how they jumped and leaped and all those types of things. This was not a a time where they were determining if the athlete was in the race or not. They were solidly in the race. This was post-race, post-game, when they evaluated, assessed, they were assessed. So Paul used that language because he understood that that the Corinthians and the Thessalonians and, and the Philippians, they understood that language and he was painting a picture that they could connect with to tell us that as Christians, we are in a race. Paul said, run the race as to win the prize. And they were, we are in this race and he's letting us know that at the end of time, we as believers in Jesus Christ only will stand before Christ beam a seat, his assessment chair. One by one, we will file before him and he will assess and evaluate how we ran this race when we were on the earth as believers in Christ. The race begins for you the first moment that you exchange your old life for your new one in Christ. Thank God The race does not include what happened before we came to Christ. I will also reiterate and reinforce the the reality that as we stand at the Bema Seat of Christ, this is not a place where we have to question whether or not we are saved. There is a place for those who are not followers of Christ, who have not exchanged their old life for a new one, who are not, have not bridged the gap between themselves and God, those who have not been covered uh, are protected by the blood of Christ, the pure blood of the Lamb of, of God. Now, for you, that may, if you're new to spirituality, if you're new to Christianity, that may be like, wow, that, that's pretty heavy. It, it actually is. All of us are sinners. Each of us are born and with the lineage from Adam. When Adam fell in the book of Genesis, every human being who ever walks the planet are infected, infected by the disease we call sin. 
We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. And there's a big difference. Every single one of us are in need of God's forgiveness. And until we reach that point, we are at a distance from God. And we have this lifetime in order to bridge that gap. God gives us the opportunity to choose Christ. To not by human effort find rightness with God. But by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross that he shed his blood. He broke his body and he came back from the dead. And if we trust in that gift and accept that as our, uh, through faith as God's gift and as our acceptance in God's sight, then it is not what we do. It is truly what God has already done. So when we stand before God, it is not about that. There will be those who are not followers of Christ who will stand before what's called the great white throne judgment. And at that time, it will be determined that because they have not bridged that gap, they will uh, spend an eternity away from God. It is a sobering thought. It is not a religious thought. It's a reality thought. It is, it is a very um, horrifying moment. And I say that because I would be profoundly remiss if I did not speak truth. It is not a boo game. It is not a scared game. It's not any of that. It's not a mind game. It is a reality. And uh, it, it must be said. But at the Bema Seat of Christ, we're there. We're solidly in Christ. We're, we're excited to see him, and, and, and he will evaluate how we run this race. We found that there are some that will be rewarded, others will be empty-handed. But everyone who stands at the Bema Seat of Christ, their salvation is secure. So I say that because this can easily be translated and, and thinking, oh boy, I, my salvation is in question. If you're a follower of Christ... If you've given your life to him, it is not. I hope I've said it enough. That way you will not walk on this earth an unnecessary fear and guilt of, uh, about your salvation because it will drive you absolutely insane. If you wonder from day to day, am I good enough? Did I get it right? Am I you know, in? Am I out? Am I in? Am I out? Am I in? And am I out? Trust me, if it were up to you, you're out. Uh, just like that. If it's up to Christ, you're in. You're always in. You will be in. You're secure. So you have that assurance. However, you want to run this race in such a way to get the prize, as Paul said, because the rewards that God gives are not rewards that we think about, like a new car, but the rewards that position us for the rest of eternity because we will be busy. It's not about sitting on clouds playing harps. It's going to be exciting. And trust me, Christ is your champion. I must say it over and over. He is the one that's saying, run, run harder, run harder because I got this position. Oh, I just, I'm wanting you to. And so when we're blowing the race, when we've taken off our shoes or they're untied or we're at the snack bar, trust me, it's not Christ saying, I hate you. He's like, no, I love you. Run Run, 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 run. So those things you must embed as a, as a foundation. Now today, we're going to end this collection of conversations with what I call the secret ingredient. This secret ingredient trumps everything that we've talked about up to this point. Now, 
I have to tell you, last Sunday afternoon, I had lunch with a good friend of mine. And uh, I used to teach his, his daughter piano, and then they moved to Jacksonville, moved to Orlando, and then lo and behold, three or four weeks ago, he came walking through the door, and they're back in Sarasota. It's kind of a neat thing. We've known him for years. Uh, my friend has uh, family roots in the Middle East, and I love Middle Eastern food. I eat it almost daily, to be honest with you. I, I fixed this dish called tabbouleh. Uh, if you know Middle Eastern food, food you know that. Uh, if you don't, then you just think, well, that's a strange name, tabbouleh. I fix tabbouleh for myself every single week. It's uh, got parsley and onions, and and uh, it's got uh, no, it's, it's it's a wonderful dish. Well, I don't know if you remember, but a few months ago, I with those that were here, I share with you that I was looking for this secret ingredient because when I eat at Middle Eastern restaurants, I was like, man, there's something there, and I thought that I had discovered the secret ingredient was za'atar. You remember za'atar? All right. So I'm having lunch with my friend last week. I'm like, hey, so I went through the whole thing. I fixed tabbouleh. I'm eating at a restaurant. I figured it's za'atar. You know what he said? No, it's not za'atar. I'm like, ah, come on. He said, I got the ingredients straight from Lebanon. I got them, and I'm going to come over to your house, and we're going to fix it. Man, I cannot wait to get the real secret ingredient. When we stand before Christ... Trust me when I say, as we end this conversation, this, this, the, these thoughts about the Bema Seed, you'll see that this secret ingredient is something that you don't want to miss. We begin with this thought. Not everything is as it appears to be. Not everything is as it appears to be. So this past week, uh, I walk into my office. And uh, laying on the office floor was this. And so I took my shoe off, and in a very stealth way, I snuck up. And I pulverized, oh, pow, pow, pow. You know how it is? Sometimes you hit a roach, and they're like some miraculously still alive. I was ensuring that he or she was not alive on my floor. I pulverized it. I mean, that thing seemed impervious because it was rubber. <laughs> My nine-year-old had strategically placed it on the floor. Not all things are as they appear to be. So this whole week, we've been doing a game. We've been playing off each other. So that fake roach has been in many different places. You know, we sneak it in. Like I snuck it in the door handle when he went to school. You know, he opens it up, falls out. Ah, it's pretty awesome. I found mine on, you know, the top of my mayonnaise jar. When I opened the fridge, there it was. You know, I put it in his iPad. He opened it up. Ah, there it is, you know, under his place. That roach has traveled many miles this week between the two of us. I'm a little nervous because I haven't seen it in a couple days. God only knows where that rubber roach is right now. I looked at that thing. I'm like, yeah, not all things are as they appear to be. On a serious note, no one sitting in this room has missed the news of Ebola. It's so serious, and it just evokes emotion in us as human beings because we can't see it. We can only see the results of it. You may be sitting next to a person, hopefully right, not right now, but sitting next to a person who has it and they don't even know that they have it yet. You see how things like this just get out of hand and you can see the human emotion that takes place. 
There are other times when you receive an email from a person you don't know and there's an attachment and you think, I'm not opening it. By the way, I would never open it because things aren't always as they appear to be. Probably a half a dozen times every single week, somewhere from another country because I'm a pastor, I get an email that starts, hey, brother, trying to get money. It's not what it appears to be. It's some kind of scheme and all those things. Many of you have gotten them throughout your life. There are things that are underneath the things that we see in this lifetime. You see, we live in such a way that we have really the outer life and the inner life. And when we stand at the Bema seat of Christ, we will be evaluated on the outer race that we ran. But what differs from the Bema seat of Christ and the Bema seat of athletics is that in athletics, it really didn't matter what was on the inside of an athlete as long as they performed well. With Christ, it's completely different. He not only wants to see how you ran the race, what you did, but what was on the inside as you were running that race. We call this motive. What was your motive? Was it pure? Was it tainted? Was it selfish? What was happening on the inside? God has given to us so many abilities, the ability to to see, the, the ability to speak, to think, to reason, the ability to be creative, the, the, the ability to enjoy different flavors of foods and colors and all those things. But God did not give us the ability to look into the heart, into the motive, into the mind of another person. As we will see, the Bema Seat of Christ, when you, as we've talked about it, it may seem like a, a New Testament concept. But as we'll see today that the Bema Seat, in other words, human beings standing before God who have followed Him, bringing into account not only how they ran the race, but what was on the inside, has been around for a long, long time. We begin today in Jeremiah chapter 17. I invite you to bring your Bibles as I kind of uh, focused, uh, hovered on that last week. If you didn't, not guilt tripping you, but I do urge you to bring your Bible and to spend time writing in it and, and making notes and, and whatnot. And uh, so if you've brought your Bible, Jeremiah 17, we begin. I find this verse stunning. It is a stunning reality that that tells us that God looks through another set of lenses. Now, through the five weeks that so far that we've talked about the Bema Seat, we have been encouraged to look through a different set of lenses. In other words, to look through the lenses as if you're standing at the Bema Seat looking backward. If you, if you live your life in such a way that you're, that you're already there and you're looking back, it should change the way you do certain things. Look through the lenses and a different way of looking forward that you are hoping that and, and running to get that prize. Many different versions, versions of looking through the lenses. But today, we're looking through the lenses that God sees. He looks and has the capability of looking through another set of lenses. Jeremiah 17, verse 10. God says these words, I, the Lord, search the heart. That's nothing new. But these next words I found riveting. I, the Lord, search the heart 
and examine the mind. He's a, he's a mind reader. He reads a mind as clearly as we read words on a page. You remember David in Psalm 139. He said these words, you perceive God, you perceive my thoughts from afar, even before I even thought it. So you're saying, well, you mean, I just had a thought. You mean, God, yep. I was about to think something about a thought. Yep, God's got it. Okay, I thought something three weeks ago. Yep, God's got it. See, we think we're Mr. Big Shot with gigabytes and megabytes and terabytes and all those bytes. God's hard drive is a lot bigger than ours, trust me. And so God has all these thoughts and he sees them and he reads them, he examines them. God has the ability to look through a set of different lenses. I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind and watch how he connects this to the Bema seat of accountability in Jeremiah in the Old Testament to reward a man or a woman according to his or her conduct, according to what his or her deeds deserve. In other words, he's saying your deeds and your contact or your uh, your uh, conduct are directly attached to what's happening up here in your mind, and what's happening here in your heart. In other words, it matters how we thought. It matters what we had on the inside. Not that we just said, okay, I'll do it. But how we did that. Jesus often faced off with the religious leaders of the day. And he was trying to tell them that there's an order of things. You see, throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament... As, as James would say, faith without works is dead. In other words, there has to be this, this outward action that brings some kind of authenticity to our faith. If we don't, if we do zero from here on the end to, to the end of our life, someone would say, well, that's not, that's not, I don't see any proof of your faith. But the danger that we face as Christians is this. That we can be about the action without the passion inside. It is possible. I know. I've done it many times. All along the way, God has always intended our actions to follow what has been done on the inside. In other words, God, I'm going to tangibly give you something. I'm going to write a check. I'm going to give my tithe. But the reason I'm doing that is because... You've done something inside and man, I can't wait to do it. Paul said, don't give under compulsion. Give because you're jazzed to give. My version, not his. Give because you've got the passion because man, God, you've given everything to me. Every thread I've ever worn, every pair of glasses I've ever had, every pair of shoes, every pair of socks. I've got every single thing you've given to me, everything. Therefore, whew, I can't wait to give it back. It starts here. Rather than, okay, that's fine. If you, you set it up front, I guess I should do it. God said, no, get the right order of things. So Jesus is squaring off in Matthew chapter 23 with the religious folks. They had become quite outward. They had got all their, they had crossed all their T's, dotted all their I's. They, in fact, made hundreds of new rules that you won't even find in the Old Testament. They love the outward rules. Jesus came along and said, you got the wrong order. Watch. Matthew chapter 23, verse 25. He's, Jesus said, woe to you, teachers of the law, Pharisees, 
you hypocrites. You see, you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence, and no one can see that, Jesus saying, but I can. See, I got a special set of lenses. It's called creator lenses. I can see those things. You see, it's kind of like you come over to to my office and let's say a cup of coffee has been sitting there on my desk for four days. You know, not that that's ever happened. And um, there's something green floating in the bottom of it. And I say, hey, hey, before I give you a cup of coffee, let me clean that for you. And I take a sponge and I wipe it on the outside and I pour coffee right on top of that. I'm like, here you go. What are you going to do? You're like, hey, I'm good. I actually had a cup on the way over, right? You say, that doesn't matter. You've cleaned the outside, but the inside is still green and, and, and grimy. And nobody's going to ever, ever have a cup of coffee in my office again. He says, watch, you blind Pharisees. Why? They, they could not see through a, a lenses, so he called them blind. He said, watch this next word. First, important word. First, clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will reflect that. I saw this, this, this image on the internet, and it so pictures. Just let your mind play with this for a second. Now, I'm going to ask you to do an exercise. I want you to sit here for 30 seconds. I want you to go front side, front side. Just go back and forth. See what happens. Is that freaking with you? I'm sitting there in my office. I think I need some Dramamine. I'm I'm getting a little dizzy sitting here. It's fatiguing, actually. I I literally made myself do it for a couple minutes, and it's fatiguing because you're like, "Oh, I got it." Well, no, it's out. It's in. It's out. It's in. It's out. It's in. It's out. It's in. Listen, every human being sitting in this room, in fact, around the planet, but in this room, wrestles with this in, out, in, out, in, out, in, out thing because we have inherited this disease called sinful nature from Adam. Really bad news. Maybe the worst news you'll ever have. It's never going away. All of us have got the grime in the bottom of the cup. But we have, we're, and so, but we're trying to live for Christ, but there it is. And we're trying to live for Christ, but there it is. And there's this wrestling. God gives us uh, the ability to live above that, not with our own effort, but it's there. The problem is, especially the older we get as Christians, the more we master the outside cleaning of the cup. I love to hang out with new Christians because they haven't mastered the outside. I was just praying with somebody not too long ago. Just came to Christ. This is the way they started their prayer. Hey, God. I'm like, I'm already in. I love that. It wasn't, dear heavenly righteous father about all the earth. You know, I mean, it didn't have all that. And they ended the prayer instead of, you know, the proper way in Jesus' name. They ended the prayer like this. No joke. That's all I got. <laughs> all right. I'm loving that. I love the freshness of it. And you know what God said? Like that. I like that freshness. You don't have to make it sound good. Just say it. Just breathe it. Just live it. But it starts in here first. But we master the sense of being having that outside cup so clean. Jesus said, look, you got to be careful that you understand that all that's going to come out. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 14. It's a significant verse. You know why? It's the last thing that the wisest man on the planet 
wrote in his book called Ecclesiastes. You see, Solomon was endowed and fused with this divine supernatural wisdom. He wrote this book. It has a bit of cynicism in it. If you actually read the books, the book of Ecclesiastes. But there are words of wisdom. And when he finishes his book, he finishes with this final sentence in verse 14. He said, for God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it's good or evil. Not our sin. Let me let me reiterate that when you're standing at the Bema seat of Christ, if you're thinking, oh, brother, as a Christian, I did that back in 1993. Is that going to come out? It won't. Let me give you good, some good news. You know why? Christ's blood is extraordinarily powerful. This is not about your sins. It's like, ah, man, you were running the race, but you weren't doing it in such a way. But, you know, you're forgiven. But we, we're going to assess that. This is not about our sins. They're, for, they're forgiven. They're washed. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 13, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now, when Jesus came along, even though in the Old Testament, as we're seeing, God is saying, hey, it matters what's on the inside. Things had drifted. And they drift with us, don't they? I find my, some chapters in my life where I'm like, ah, dude, how did I get over here? I was over here. I was kind of walking with God. I was doing pretty good. Had a good rhythm going. And then suddenly I wake up and I'm like, somehow I'm over here. And God is saying, well, that's important. You got you to gotta come back to it. But when Christ showed up, things had got so over here that he says, I've got to recalibrate. I've got I've to re-engage your thinking in a different way. So particularly in one of his first sermons that we have recorded, it's called the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus begins to say, look, guys, I know that you've heard it said this way, but we got, I got to drift you back. I got to get back to the heart of the matter. So if you have your Bible with you, this is a good time to turn to Matthew chapter 6. Now, if you don't have your Bible, just listen. There's so much content. I couldn't put it up on the screen, but you'll get it if you're, if you're listening too. But if you have your Bible, it's good because you'll see this kind of overall scope. So let me just kind of hit some monkey bars here and on our um, peaks of mountains in this this whole chapter. I just want you to see how Jesus was saying, you got to come back to this thought. It's really, really important. And it's connected to the Bema seat, the secret ingredient that God's looking on the inside. So he takes different topics. He begins with the topic of getting, giving to the needy. It's a good thing. On the outside, and as we should. But he's saying, but when you're giving to somebody in need, it's got to be right first here. And you can't do it in such a way that you're showing everybody because Jesus said, you've already received your reward on earth. You're not going to get anything when you get there. And, and trust me, Jesus is not scolding them. He's being their champion. He's saying, dude, you're going to lose it on earth. It's going to stay here. Don't do that. Not because I'm angry, but don't do that because it's going to be awesome there. It's going to be, I have a position for you there and I want you so bad to have it. You got to hear his heart. So he says, look, starting in chapter six and giving to the needy in verse four or verse three, he says, but hey, when you get to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. In other words, don't, you know, make sure it's a big show. He said, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father, here it is, who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Can you hear 
the champion in Christ's voice. If he weren't the champion, he wouldn't say this. He would just wait till they got up there and say, you blew it, man. But right now he's saying, no, look, do it in secret so that your father who sees wouldn't say, I'll reward you when you get there. Don't do it. Don't let everybody know. Just do it privately because then that jazz is God because he knows it's real. It's in your heart. Do it that way. That's the spirit of Christ. Even I think he used a lot of hand gestures, but that's just me. <laughs> I don't buy the TV version of Christ. Good morning. I just don't get that. Then he starts to talk about prayer. He says, man, if you're going to talk to God, again, don't make it flowery. Don't make it all this religious speak. He says, look, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites in verse 5. They love to stand praying in the synagogue, street corners, seen by all the men, blah, blah, blah. In verse 6, but when you pray, get into a closet, a broom closet. Close the door. Pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees through a different set of lenses and sees what is done in secret will reward you. Right now, my, we're, we're set up a temporary office space here. I've got a closet. I'm, I'm my dad, I got a little desk and a broom closet. I, it, and there's a lot of um, materials in there that have a lot of fumes. I'm finding them more creative these days. I just, you know, but I'm, my, I'm praying a lot more creative. God said, find a closet. You don't have to make it out in front of everybody. Take the spot. Then he's, ta he's talking about fasting. That's abstaining from food for spiritual reasons. Again, he says the same thing. I just wanted you to get to how many times he says it. Verse 17, when you fast, put oil on your face. Wash your face off. So there will not be obvious to men that you're fasting, but only to your father who is unseen. And your father who has a special set of lenses has, who sees what is done in secret. Do it that way, Christ. Because the reward is going to be off the chart. So get in a closet, give privately, do it from the inside out, Christ is saying, because the reward is awesome. Why would he say it over and over and over if he weren't on your side? Then he says, look, about giving, by the way, verse 21, where your treasure is, man, I got you, that's where your heart is. You want to hang on to everything? You think it's about your bank account? No, it's about your heart account. That's what it's about. So if you're like, dude, I don't like to give. No, don't, don't, then don't think about that. Think about your heart. Clean the inside of the cup first. That's what Christ is saying. Then he makes this profound statement. He says, man, verse 23 at the end, if the light within you is darkness, man, it's dark. You got to get, you got to work on the inside. And then he says, verse 24, no one can serve two masters and no one will see it except me. I know Jesus is saying, when I peer into your mind and examine your heart and your mind, I know who's boss, period. Sometimes that's how I feel inside. I feel like he is examining like an, a, a spiritual MRI. So all those little things that we thought we could fake God out, like not, not, not working. Matthew chapter 6, powerful. Now, here's the deal. Because Jesus is our champion, I'll remind you that because he's wanting to position us, that's why he's encouraging us. And I believe that there are pictures all throughout the Bible. I'll, re I'll say again that one of my favorite passages in the scriptures is uh, after the resurrection. Jesus is, catches up to some disciples who are walking to this place called Emmaus. And he says that he opens up the scripture to him. Well, at that time, they only had the Old Testament. And he showed himself in them. Dude, that would have been the most 
uh, coolest conversation because I, I imagine him going like, hey, you know Leviticus? Kind of boring. I know, I know. Or just be honest. I, I saw you thinking that, so uh, I might as well say it. Look, here I am right there. <gasps> that is cool. And he's just showing them, and you know they're excited. I know the, the Greek word jazz is in there somewhere because their hearts burned. That meant, <sighs> that's what that means. Their hearts burned. <sighs> wow, I didn't see that. And I believe that when we're in eternity looking back, we're going to say, it was right there. And that's why Jesus is saying, look, look, look a little closer because it's right there in front of you. So you remember before the Israelites crossed over in the Old Testament into the promised land, they sent, they got some intel. They sent the 12 spies. Many of you know that story. Two of them came back and said, man, you know, God told us that we're going to take the land. So I have a conviction about that. I'm committed to what he said was going to come out to be true. However, however, the other ten came back and they were Eeyores and they freaked everybody out. And they said, oh boy, the, the people are big there. They're bigger than us. They're going to beat us up. And it's going to be really bad. It's going to be bad for our children. It's going to be bad, bad for our pets. Bad for our 401. And everything's going to be bad. It's really, And they freaked out the whole community. And so... The difference between the two is that everybody, all these 12 men, saw the same thing. The reality didn't change. It was through the lenses that they looked at. When these guys came back, Caleb and Joshua were the only two that had the conviction to follow God based on what he said. They were positioned as a picture. Watch. Because of what was in their heart, they were positioned for something in the future that was really amazing. So what we do in Joshua, we're going to pick it up in Joshua chapter 14, I believe. Joshua chapter 14, yes. In Joshua chapter 14, it's so cool. We are now 40 years later than that event. So we get a post game, a 40-year post game. After that happened, when those 12 spies came back, 10 were Eeyores, 2 were Joshua and Caleb, and they, they now 40 years, fast forward 40 years later, Moses is now dead. Caleb comes to Joshua in this conversation. Look what he says in verse 7. Joshua chapter 14, verse 7. Caleb says, I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. So he's remembering 40 years ago. And I brought back to Moses a report according to, to my convictions inside. I didn't bring back a report about just what I saw. Oh, they were big. Yeah, they could beat us up. But that didn't change me because I was looking through the lenses of my convictions of what God said. You see, when you're at, in your work or you're in school or whatever and people are laughing at you or making fun of you or jeering you because of your faith... What will make a difference is what's galvanized in your heart if you have convictions. You'll say, it doesn't matter to me because I know that I am a new person, that I'm a, I've exchanged the old life for a new one. Things are different. Christ has done something amazing. I'm forgiven. I'm on my way to heaven. And I'm telling you, it's awesome. Go ahead and laugh because I have inner convictions. If you don't have those inner convictions, you'll fold cards right away. See, Caleb, before he went in, he said, man, I'm galvanized. I got it right here. Whatever is on the outside, big people who can beat us up, all those things, no problem. Because my interior is settled 
So he came back. I brought back to Moses a report according to my convictions. But my Eeyore brothers, who went up with me, made the hearts of the people freak out, melt with fear. I, however, followed the Lord my God. Here it is. Wholeheartedly. It was about the inside, not the outside. So on that day, watch this. Moses swore to me, because of your convictions and your heart, because of what was happening on the inside, the land on which your feet have walked when you were over there spying will be your inheritance and that of your children forever because you have followed the Lord, your, my God, from your heart wholeheartedly. And Joshua and Caleb, as they're having this conversation, are the only two who survived that generation. God said, because your heart was right here, dude, I've got a reward for you and your generation and your generation before after that. That is going to be incredible picture of the Bema seat right there in the Old Testament. Same thing for David. You remember King Saul was the first king of Israel. He blew it. He Pride got to him. It went to his head. And God said, hey, you're out. I'm going to pick a new one. Watch this. First Samuel chapter 13, verse 14. Saul, now your kingdom will not endure. It's over. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed past tense. It's past tense in the present. I'm trying to figure that one out. He's already appointed him leader of his people. Why? Because he had a right heart. When we stand before Christ, his eyes will penetrate why we did what we did. It's about the heart. Now, I'm going to invite you to put on your thinking cap because we're going to jump in the deep end for just a second. Here's the challenge that we have as evangelical Christians, as conservative Christians. We have come to the place in our life at times where we say, okay, I no longer watch this. I no longer do this. I no longer drink this. For some of us, I no longer smoke this. I no longer blah, 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 fill in the blank. And because of that, we think, oh, running the race as Christ would have it. But underneath of those things are the more subtle parts of what we would call our flesh, our sinful nature. C.S. Lewis, the great English writer, distinguished our self in two parts. The animalistic self, greed, lust, those things that are more obvious, and what he called the diabolical self. Now, when I think of the word diabolical, I mean, yeah, 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 it feels like that, right? So, but he was using it in a different way, in a way of saying the subtle things. In other words, he even said, well, C.S. Lewis quotes this. He said, the sins of the flesh are bad, but they are the least bad of all sins. There are two things inside me, the animal self and the diabolical self. The diabolical self is the worst. Of the two. He goes on to say in that quote, that's why the Christian prude who has cleaned up his or her life is often more blinded than a person without Christ because I feel so clean. See, I don't do that anymore. I found this quote in a book that I talk about often, The Safest Place on Earth by a guy named Larry Crabb. Larry Crabb said, let me tell you an example of this. And I've got some examples. If you're thinking, okay, that's pretty heavy. Where are we going with this? Larry Crabb tells this story. He was in an airport one time traveling. 
He was had a layover, and he found a bookstore, one of those bookstores in the airport. And he was going over to the bookstore, and he was finding a, some fiction book. He names the name of the book, and he was kind of thumbing through it. And as he was thumbing through it, he noticed in his peripheral vision the R-rated section, you know, where they have the magazines and there's the cover over it and everything. He said, for about 10 seconds, my animalistic self kicked in. I'm in an airport. Nobody knows where I am. And just, he said, I've been a Christian for many years, and yet there it was. It's why in The Lord of the Rings, if you've ever watched it, it's such a great depiction that C.S. Lewis's friend uh, uh, wrote the story. We know when the, the ring and, ah, my precious, and you, if you watch that movie, it just kind of creeps out. That's what happens to us. Those animalistic things, they just creep out. I'm like, dude, what was that about? So Larry Crabb's standing there in the airport, and he's like, just for 10 seconds, I'm like, might just kind of, you know, do the, like, scoot over like that, you know. I'm like, oh, well, it was right in front of me. But he said, no, I caught myself. I caught myself. I'm like, no, come on, Larry, I'm not about that. I'm not about those animalistic sins. And so he didn't. He refrained. He constrained himself from that animalistic sin of lust. And then suddenly he drifted in the diabolical side. This is what he writes. He says, I aborted the plane. I remember feeling proud. Not grateful, but proud. Lots of men, maybe even some preachers, might have yielded, lost track of time in the R-rated aisle, and missed their plane. But with satisfaction, I flipped open my book and began reading as we took off for Chicago. I had entered the ring and knocked out my animal self. That was good. But I didn't see my diabolical self sitting ringside, grinning broadly. At that moment, I was a ghost feeding my soul on pride. You see, I, I felt the need to say this to my fellow conservative Christians because this is the part that requires a depth of sight. Those things in us that that cause us to miss. They're, they're, they're so subtle. They're so diabolical that we miss them, that we didn't look at the wrong thing, but we felt pretty good about ourselves taking credit secretly for it. Of what a great job that we've done. I was thinking through, through different things. Have you ever done something as a Christian like, okay, everybody else is putting up chairs. I'll put up chairs. That's fine. I mean, we'll do it. Uh, that's okay. But inwardly, you're saying, dude, I'd rather be home watching the, uh, the game or whatever that was. It's called compliance. Those things, okay, fine. I, you know, he told me I should read the Bible. Okie doke, I read the Bible. God sees that moment of compliance. Sometimes even generosity can get the best of us. Have you ever noticed? Money is such a diabolically subtle element in our existence as Christians. As much as we fight it, we give a gift, we give a generous gift. And there's something in us that's, you know, this whole place would go up in flames. They weren't for me, you know what I'm talking about? You know. Or we begin to leverage the leader and say, hey, you know, I did give that blah, blah, blah. Money has that sense where something that starts as good all of a sudden has the ability to subtly make a strip. Now, here's what I'm doing if you've missed it. I'm confessing. It feels so good to confess in front of many people. You ought to try it one day. 
I'm hoping that some of you are like, mm, boy, that rings a bell. If you did, just go ahead and nod your head. Especially you there in the back, it's kind of dark. No one will see you. Up here, nobody's nodding their head. I noticed that. I'm like, <laughs> I mentor people. Some of you mentor people, disciple people. Gosh, it's so, you would think, man, I'm, this is going good. I'm seeing change in this person's life, you know. We just kind of pull up, snuck up our belt and say, you know, I'm doing pretty good with that. And, and then you're reminded when Paul says, look, I plant, Apollos water, another guy water, but it, God causes the growth. Get off the high horse. Watch that diabolical drift there, buster. That's God speaking to me. I'm not speaking to you. I'm calling you buster. These are things that can so subtly happen where we, we, we so uh, carefully and, and cautiously and masterfully name drop, do we not? Number drop. Sometimes people can look at me and say, Steve, you're the nicest guy. You know what the problem is? Sometimes I'm the nicest guy. I've shared with you, God looking at me and said, Steve, you've got to develop a little firmness, a little courage, because underneath, you know what it's called? Cowardice. Everybody, everybody may say you're the nice guy, but when it comes to having a conversation, a confrontation, oh man, you're the first to run and hit the back door. God said, no, that's not how we work things out. You gotta, you gotta, you know, grow some muscles there and navigating through conflict. You just can't, you, you can't cower from that. But on the outside, see, my cup says, Mr. Nice Guy. But if you looked on the inside, God would say, yeah, but you're a little bit of a fraidy cat. And see, I want you to serve in my kingdom in the future. I want you to mount up and ride. And no Freddy Cots allowed, Steve. So we're going to have to dig down deep and look at some of these things. I've been busy for Christ. How about you? I'm hoping, again, some of these hit home for you. There are times I've been busy for Christ. Busy, 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 busy. But not umbilically tied to God and doing my own thing. Without stopping and saying, hey, wait, wait, wait a minute. i got to make sure I'm not doing this out of my own self. Make sense? All right. Now, let's take a turn. Who wants to go next? Come on up. <laughs> we all have the capacity to subtly drift in ways that we don't know. Now, listen carefully. This is one of the reasons that we have a strategy here and we talk about it a lot. Why, why would I say that in this moment? I'll tell you why. Because it's not enough for a preacher just to address these things. Many of them like, okay, I got you. I understand that. But we must talk about the how. How in the world then do we address it? And here's my proposal to you. The reasons that we fail as Christians is that we try to do these deeper works in a group setting and it's nearly impossible to work these things out in a group setting this is why we need mono e mono womano e womano we need one-to-one where you got someone who's close enough to say man gosh we got to dig down deep in some of these things because we didn't talk about it in the group because everybody's being careful and christian in the group and we've mastered the christian thing in the group but we're just it's just you and me let's get down there's a number of people now going through discipleship and they get to a certain point like dude it's starting to get a little tense it's starting to get a little rough starting to have a little conflict going on perfect this is awesome See, because this is not the church. We don't want to be the church that's just, you know, hey, everything's friendly. See you. How's it going? How's the dog? How's the wife? How's the work? Great. We'll see you next time. 
Christ were looking at and said, come on, drill down deep. And you cannot do that in a group setting. Does that make sense? There has to be a how. There's another how. We're reminded as we close today. Once again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring light to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. One reminder by Erwin Lutzer, the book we've been tracking. Erwin Lutzer is the pastor of the Moody Church in Chicago. Keep in mind that the value of a deed depends on the attitude of the heart. We should notice in passing that a good motive does not mean we enjoy doing a particular deed. My father used to make us smile when we raked leaves. How about yours? Remember those days? God's not looking for that. We must get close enough where we can truly iron sharpen iron. But secondly, and listen, more importantly is this. We absolutely have to be consistent in our one-to-one time with God. I grew up in Virginia and we took a, our vacation to Daytona Beach every year. If you've ever swam in the Atlantic Ocean, it has a little bit more of a current than our swimming pool here that we call the Gulf uh, Coast. Both are beautiful, but it's, uh, there's a lot more movement in, in the Atlantic Ocean on, the, on that side of Florida. And so when you win it, we go into the ocean as boys, and it happens a little bit here in Sarasota, but we go in the ocean as boys, and, you know, we're in front of the, you know, the motel there, the, the Coral Reef Motel or whatever it was, and you're swimming and you're throwing around, you know, the, the beach balls and the frisbees and the, and the rafts. There's something that happens in the midst of that. You get in the water right here, and there's your there's your motel. Mom and dad are up there. They're on the they're on the beach towel, and you see their you know their beach umbrella, and you're playing. And while you're playing, something's happening. You know what's happening? The current is causing you to go over here. And you know, as kids, you don't care about mom and dad. They're still there. You're secure. They're, you know they're going to be there. And then what happens is you're playing, you're playing, you're playing, and you have about 45 minutes. You're back over here. And then you come out of the ocean. And it's at that moment you freak out, right? Because now you're looking at, you know, palm tree suites. And over here, you know you're staying in the Coral Reef Motel. And so you're like, you you come out of the ocean. Palm, whatever I said, palm something. (laughs) Where are mom and dad? I feel lost. Because there was a subtle undercurrent. Come on, let's be honest. Aren't there those moments where you're like in this time where we're talking about the motives and everything. And you pop your head out of the ocean of life. And you find yourself and you look in the mirror and you say, how did I get here? Because the subtle diabolical drift of those subtle things, our pride and whatnot, unforgiveness and all those little teeny things, they drift us over here. And the only way I know how to tell you is you got to get with somebody that can point these things out. And you must stay at the point of the motel, which is the cross of Christ. 
You must come and say, God, again, I'm here again. And I crucify this self to you. Because if I don't crucify this self and you infuse me with the power to be anchored, if I'm unattached, I'm like a boat in a river and I'm stupid enough to believe the boat is going to stay in the same place. I must be attached to Christ. This is why Paul wrote these words in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. But let me tell you, it's no longer I that's doing this race. It's Christ in me. This is the secret. It seems so simple, doesn't it? Today, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, there are many ways that we approach the Lord's Supper. There are sometimes we celebrate. But Paul said about the Lord's Supper, when you go and experience, when you experience the Lord's Supper, examine yourself. In other words, he would say, look inside since God already knows your thoughts, you might as well tell him if it's true for you, God, I've drifted, man. I, I don't know how. I don't know how I got there, but I'm looking at a different hotel. And somehow I've lost sense from the cross. Perhaps you're you would say, man, I tell you, I am walking with God. I am, uh, you know, because it's not always about what we're doing wrong. Some of you are like, man, I'm anchored. Can I say to you, keep being anchored. Don't subtly drift away. If you happen right now in the chapter of your life to be in rhythm and you're daily going to God and you're cru being crucified, I would say, keep it up because Christ, your champion, is saying, oh, there is great reward for you. So we come today to the Lord's table, and we say, I remember, Christ, that you died for me, that my sins are forgiven, but today, again, I die with you. Today, I crucify my flesh again, myself, so that I don't subtly drift away. And with that in mind, I invite you to pray. Father, thank you for being our champion for having greater things in store for us than we could ever, ever imagine. And because you are who you are, you don't want us to blow this race. Thank you for a ch having that a champion's heart that tells us to store up treasures in heaven, to pray in secret, to give in secret, to align our heart to be crucified with you so that you can live through us and give us the ability through the power of the Holy Spirit to be anchored and not move. On our own, God, we're lost. On our own, God, we drift. On our own, God, our selfishness will take us right down the current. That's why we must be tethered to you. As we come to this table today, God, we do what Christ has instructed us to do. We remember. We remember, God, how frail we are. We remember, God, how driftable we are. But because Christ has died for us and come back from the dead, 
He gives us the power of the Holy Spirit. And we remember, God, that only with you can we stay in the right spot. I pray, God, for those who in a very sobering moment, who take honest inventory, have found themselves today in a place they have no idea how they got there. I pray that the voice of your champion heart will speak to them, knowing that you will do everything possible to get them back in a place of being in rhythm with you. I thank you, God, today for those who are, who are anchored to the cross of Christ, that they crucif- they're crucified with you. I thank you, God, and I pray you that, again, the champion of the Christ will, will encourage them to stay, to keep digging in, to keep crucifying themselves. We're so grateful for Christ, for dying for us, for sacrificing for us. God, we look forward to the day we'll stand before you. As we come today, God, we worship you. And as we're about to sing, God, here's our heart. Would you speak to us what is true? For Christ, amen.